A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Mark Nepo. Okay, Mark, well, with your permission, let's transition to the Enlightening Lightning Round. Okay. Okay, how are you doing, by the way? Good. Got great, okay. got great, got thank you. Okay, so again, this is a series of about 10 questions. They're relatively short. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim is to ask the question, for the most part, to stand aside. Okay? All right. Okay. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Oh, life is like the life cycle of water. You know, that, you know, we just imagine that, you know, there's rain and snow and it condenses and it falls to the earth and then it collects and then in the spring it melts and it 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 gathers and drifts down the side of a mountain which was known as an asequia an asequia in in uh, actually in in uh, the southwest and in indigenous and in, in native americans and in mexico and also in the middle east actually thousands of years ago villages would would actually establish themselves around the bottom of an asequia where water natural water would flow and and then it would it would gather and give the source of water for, for people, and and so life is like like that, like water gathering source, dripping and dribbling into our lives, so we get what we need. But the beautiful thing about the asequia is that once a year villages have a ritual where they take two or three days, and everyone, every child, elder, mother, father, the whole village goes up the mountain and clears out the asequia because naturally trees fall, beavers, snakes build nests and they have to clear out the asequia <clears throat> the, the, where water, the source, comes into their lives. And that's something that we need to do that we don't do is how to clear out our personal asequia and our collective asequia. Oh, I, I love that. And, and by the way, for anybody that hasn't already picked up this book. <laughs> what you say about shedding in the book, I think is just so beautiful. So right, oh, thank you. Kind of along with this. Okay, question number two. Borrowing this question from Peter Thiel, his famous question, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Probably how important the heart is. I think the heart is the strongest muscle we have. I think the heart is the inlet between inner and outer. It's the tuning fork of the sacred. And I think because of the life of feelings 
and the over-reliance on mind, there's a fear of discovering, there's a fear of trusting the heart and a fear of discovering, you know, that the heart is really the, our, our window to everything. Well said. Okay, question number three. I acknowledge this might be a stretch, but I invite you to just go with it. <laughs> so if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Uh, well, there'd be many, but the one that comes to mind immediately is Mind the Gap. Mm. So this comes from, I don't know if you ever, the first time I was in London, the tube, the, their subway, there's an actual, the way it's built over there, there's actually quite a gap between the the platform and when you step onto the train. Mm. And so, I don't know why, the way they build things, you know, different than here in America. But so, in the concrete, everywhere is is actually built in is the phrase, mind the gap. And I, I actually have a t-shirt that I bought there last time I was in London for my dearest friend Robert and I. Because we are always being asked to mind the gap between, not between true and false, between limited and whole, between partial and whole, W-H-O-L-E, and between what's covered and what's uncovered, between what is what teaches us and what muffles us. So I would say mind the gap. Mm, I love that. Thank you. Okay, question number four. And I believe you've now written 20 books. Does that sound right? 22, yeah. 22, and they've been published in more than 30 languages. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is pretty awesome. So this one is asking you to set those aside for a moment and, and saying, what book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Hmm. And that is, a, I don't know, if you, have you had a chance to look at that book? I have read that book. It's yeah. been many years, though. That, that book, and I think, you know, different books speak to us in different ways. But that book, the journey that is unfolded, which is everyone's journey, is a book that I've read probably every decade of my life, and it has spoken to me differently. And so I highly recommend it. Hmm. All right. Thank you. And just on the topic of books, what's what book or what's one of the books you're reading right now? Well, actually, I'm reading a book that a dear friend of mine, also a writer, gave to me that's called In English. And it is a book about the art of translation and, and it's phenomenal it's from gray wolf press i can't remember the the editor's name at the moment but it is a book where they the two editors who teach translation asked very gifted and established translators to choose one poem throughout history to offer th not their own three translations of this poem or stanza or image and th different and then to write a commentary about that. Oh. And it's phenomenal. That's fun. Thank you. Okay, uh, question number five. So you travel a lot. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Oh, uh, well, you know, I always, um, well, this is interesting. It's not something I, I well, I do bring it with me because it's an app on my phone that my wife found. So, you know, we're very attached. I'm very attached to my dog, my yellow, my yellow lab, Zuzu, who was just here with me. So my wife, Susan, found this app, which is a camera app that uh, called a Furbo. So I can actually 
like I'm looking at you, like through Zoom, mm -hmm. I can tune into her from literally anywhere in the world in our living room. Wow. And have, like, I can, and she can hear me, and, and I can hit a button, it'll send a treat to her. So, <laughs> yeah, it's wild. So, that really makes me, you know, wherever I go, not, not seem so far away. What's it called again? How's it spelled? F-U-R-B-O. Furbo. And it's a little camera that, uh, and it has, you know, audio, you can, I can hear her or she can hear me. That is wonderful. That is really fun. Oh, cool. Okay. Thank you for that. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Oh, well, the one thing I stopped was letting fear run my life. How did you manage that? You're, I didn't see you levitate into the room. <laughs> <laughs> well, then let me be clear. It doesn't mean I don't experience fear. Okay, fair. Yeah. But I think, you know, one of the deep things I've been working with recently writing about is this notion of, there, you know, that feelings are to be moved through and not always obeyed. So fear is something to be moved through but not obeyed. Hmm. And so, you know... When, when I have given fear the keys to the car, that's when it has ruled my life. That, that we're not going to get rid of fear. Fear is a natural part of life and it has a legitimate, you know, natural purpose. Mm -hmm. It's to alert us to danger. But then we, this is one of the liabilities of the mind. The mind, may, it, it, you know, makes a great echo chamber. And so now it, it makes an echo chamber out of fear and it gives it great power. And then we wind up listening to fear. And, you know, of course, if you ask fear, what should I do? It's going to say, be more afraid. Yeah. What, what else is it going to say? But I can't deny it because it will get bigger. But how do I? So this is, you know, this is, you know, the Buddhist notion of seeing things as they are mm -hmm. is one of the most difficult, simplest and most difficult practices that I think is really important to us at every level. And, and this is one of those where, how do we right size our fear? So, you know, it doesn't mean I'm not overcome with fear in a moment. You know, I could fall down uh, taking the garbage out after we're off this interview and have fear. But it's, it's, where does it land? Where does it, does it come back? Does it return mm -hmm. to right size or do I let it? And, and I deal with, I have dealt with fear my whole life, especially through after being here, after my cancer journey, you know, of course, being afraid it'll come back, being afraid, you know, of all kinds of things. So I think, you know, Parker Palmer, do you know Parker Palmer's work? Ed yeah. Educator and activist. Yeah, great, amazing, amazing educator, visionary. And Parker's a friend and a mentor, I consider. And, and, and Parker talks about how do, how do we not drown in fear, but let the fear live in me? Hmm. This is really with any, any kind of feeling, insecurity, any kind of feeling. How do we, and this is where the heart has to be opened up because only when the heart is open and we're open to that all things are true and life is more than just what I'm going through, not to minimize what I'm going through, then we have a chance of allowing our very real feelings to take their proper place in the orchestra that is our soul. And not say, you know, not have anyone feel and come up and demand to be the conductor. No, we're the conductor. And that's in, incredibly important, incredibly important. So 
It's so yeah. So when I say that I stopped letting fear run my life, I stopped letting fear be the conductor. It didn't mean I vanquished fear or got rid of fear. It still has its part in the orchestra. Yeah. What a beautiful description. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Oh, that we are at heart the same. You know, Thomas Merton, the great Thomas Merton, one of the things he said is if we truly beheld each other, we'd fall down and worship each other. And Longfellow said, you know, if I really listened to my enemy's sufferings, they would no longer be my enemy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the courage for us to realize that we are at heart the same and to, so that we can love each other and care for each other. Another thing, you know, that, so what would, you know, what would I want American, every American to do, not, you know, in order to know that, and that's listen, Mm. listen with our heart and without conclusion and without presupposition, you know, one of the, one of the most difficult things for, for human beings is to stay current. You know, one of the gifts for us is that we don't, you know, my dog redoes everything every day, which is their beauty, and they're so in the now. Mm-hmm. And we, because we do have this consciousness, you know, I don't have to, you know, if I trip in the hole in my driveway, well, the next day I know it's there. Mm-hmm. And I, at best I can avoid it. At worst I can fear I'll fall in it again. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that one of the detriments of having a mind is that what we learn solidifies into assumptions and conclusions. And that is kind of the, the, the way that plaque fills the arteries to the heart. That, that fills the art. Those hardened assumptions and conclusions form plaque in the mind. So when we listen, we have to find some practice to empty our assumptions and conclusions so we can stay current and fresh. And that's the place from which we listen. So let me share a quick story, which I love this story, to, to a quantum physicist, because, you know, it's, it's discovered that a lot of the way that physicists see the world is very akin to how ancient Eastern sages saw the world, and so just a different language. So these two physicists want to go and speak to a, a Hindu sage in the mountains in the Himalayas, and they, they try, he get permission to go visit him, and they want to discuss their, their, their you know, their thoughts and theories of physics in the world. And so they go all this way and they fly and they go by car and then they go by Sherpa and then they're hiking. They finally get to this hut and they go in the hut and they're waiting and there's a little little wooden rickety table and on it are three cups and there's a pot of hot tea and they're waiting and waiting. Finally, this old man shuffles in without saying a word. He picks up the pot of tea and he starts pouring in the first cup. And he's pouring, and now the cup is full, and he's still pouring. And it's overflowing on the table, and the physicists are looking at each other like, we came all this way, the guy's lost it. Oh, my God, what do we do? You know, And he keeps pouring. And finally, one of the physicists says, um, uh, Your Holiness, the cup is full. And still pouring, without looking at them, the sage says, As are your minds, empty them and come back, and then we shall talk. Wow. I love your description of one of our needs is to stay current. And when I hear that, I think of my own tendency to look online, either on, you know, the mass media of what's going on in the world or in my social media feeds, trying to stay current. And and as an alternative, what you're describing of, you know, finding a way to clear those assumptions 
you know, some other practice beyond just filling the mind with more information or, you know, arriving at more conclusions somehow? Well, we, this is another kind of, you know, because of technology, which is wonderful, technology is inert. It's like a screw, it's like a fancy screwdriver, you know, it's yeah. a tool. Yeah. But, but, but what it opens up is it enhances this aberration. We live in a filler up world, filler up, fill everything up. Yeah. And all the traditions speak about the, in order to be here fully and in order to make the most of life, in order to find each other and ourselves, we have to empty, not fill. Yeah. And it's not by accident that I want to say every instrument, and maybe there isn't one, but I'll say almost every musical instrument is hollow in order to make music. It's empty. There's no music if it's solid. Mm -hmm. that, that's beautiful. Yeah, and that reminds me, uh, one of my previous podcast guests is a gentleman named Steve Zafron, who's worked with Warner Earhart for nearly 40 years, and, and he talked about some of their early conversations on how do they affect transformation. And he said, as he was tasked with this early on work in working with Warner of designing some of these programs, and he said, we came to the realization that before one could experience transformation, they must pass through a space of nothingness or emptiness. Mm. And it's how do you create that in a in a workshop, you know? But that was part of what they endeavored to do, and I think they've they've probably done a pretty good job. <laughs> so, okay, fun, fantastic question. Thank you for for that. Number eight. So we're coming down the stretch. Any one of these, man, any one of these could be they could be their own seminar. And <laughs> and I actually now that I'm here, I I feel I want to set aside the last two questions. I know we're near the end of the time we'd uh, agreed to, as well. And they're only about, one's about love, one's about money. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely want... I well, definitely go ahead. Want to go ahead and ask them. That's fine. Okay. Okay. And and then, so if it's okay with you, I just, I have, and then three more, and then we can wrap. Is that okay. good with you? Sure. Sure. Okay. okay. So the one about relationships is love, is this. What's the most, and I know here's the American doing this superlative thing. What's the most, you know? So if it's not the most, it's fine. If it's just something that's useful to you that you have learned about making relationships work what is it yeah so i think this is very very important and, and um i i i'm going to have to tell a little story about it to, to capture it but it goes to the fact that learning and accepting that because of our limitations as human beings we can't be all things to each other and therefore I can commit that I will do everything I can to be there for you, knowing that I can't. So then that means what? That means I will be open to getting other tools and resources to fill in where I can't. So it's to, to recognize and accept our limitations so we can be even more present to each other. So the story is, this goes to, and I talk about this in the Book of Awakening, and it goes back to a poem by Yeats called The Mermaid. And I don't need to recite the whole poem, but the key thing is it's about a mermaid who falls in love with a boy, a lad. And of course, she lives in the water, he lives on the land. And she's so ecstatic that she finally has someone to share her depth with. And so she wants to show him where she, where she lives. And the line is so, she, he takes a deep breath and they, she takes him down to show him. But in root, she's overcome with, with so much love. And the line is, she gives him this deep kiss and in cruel happiness he drowns. 
And so it's not a happy poem, but, but what's revealed here is very important about love and relationships, whether it's, it's significant others, family, friends, uh, you know, how, how we are there together. And that is where we can't have be all things to each other. Paradoxically, every person has a depth like that mermaid that is life-giving for us. But if we force our loved one to go there, they could drown. So it's not only intoxicating, it's dangerous. So, you know, the boy lives on land and can't, he can visit the sea, but he can't live there. And she lives in the water. She can visit the land, but she can't. So where's the relationship? It's not in her secret place or his. It's on the shore. So that changes the commitment of love. It says, you can't come and live where I alone live. So what my responsibility is, the things that I want to share with you, I have to bring to the shore mm -hmm. and not ask you to go where it might be dangerous for you. So a good, so this changes our, you know, our romantic, oh, I'm all, th I found you wonderful. You're all things there. Why can't you, you know, so my wife's a potter and we've been together over 25 years and somewhere, I don't know, year nine or 10, and she's very wise, very earth grounded person. And I write, I'm prolific and I share a lot with her. I have through the years and I was excited to share something. And she looked at me, and I'll never forget, and she said, you, you know that I'm interested in your work, but you have to decide. Do you want me to be your reader or your partner? Mm -hmm. And I didn't, no hesitation. I said, my partner, my partner. And in the years that have followed, I've come to see as she has become so deeply, deeply in her craft and art, you know, that that world with clay and forms and i i can't go there i'll drown nor can she go where i go and we have to bring to the shore and it's like birds that fly out but they come back to the same nest every day and so we can't be all you know another way that i understand this i have a poem i can't recite the poem but the the real lesson in the poem is you know it's about promises the heart promises everything meaning well and sometimes we break promises because we lie or we don't tell the truth. But often we don't keep promises because we promise more than we can deliver. Not because we're something wrong with us, but because then the image is no matter how much a hawk opens its wings, it can't cover the entire sky. Mm -hmm. I promise the sky to you because I love you, but my wings can't cover the whole sky. My life can't cover the promises that my heart makes. I'll do my best. And that's different from lying or being hypocritical or promising one thing but not meaning it. Yeah. This is the difference. So that's the one thing about love that is, because paradoxically, when I accept that, I can give more. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's wise. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Final question here in the enlightening lightning round, which is now about money, which is what is something that you have learned about money that served you well, or what's something you're always sure to do with it or never do with it? Well, uh, one thing is that I've, that informs all that is after 
almost dying, it became very clear that relationship, time, and health are wealth, mm. not money. And that informs, you know, money is, is just another tool. It's just another tool. And it is to, you know, uh, again, to give wherever possible and, and not to hold on to it. Money won't protect you. It won't keep you from dying. It won't keep you from being lonely. You know, so I think that, you know, and, and this is one thing which is in the book, you know, that I learned early on. You know, we all, every human being has to both survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. And every, in our incarnation, we all get to, to go on that journey. And so we have to survive. There's no question about it. But if it's not to thrive, what's the point? Yeah, and this is exactly Maslow's hierarchy, right? The survival needs at the bottom. And then moving well, closer. yeah, but I would add to Maslow's hierarchy that you know there was a British developmental psychologist Bowlby who developed the theory of attachment, mm-hmm. a good attachment, not mm-hmm. not it, that we need the bonds of relationship emotionally in order to serve. You know, so it kind of works with Maslow. I wouldn't even call Maslow a hierarchy. I would call it a constellation. And when we add Bowlby, it's like, yeah, we, we need that. And also, if if we have those bonds, I can get through the other. Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the things that, and again, this came to me unexpected, which these stories, you know, share that when we, when we can be authentic, whether great love and great suffering bring us to the edge of authenticity. And when we are there, we often discover what we didn't know we know. So like when I was in that hotel room where it came out of me to be broken, there's no reason to see all things as broken. I didn't know that I knew that. And when I was a, you know, after I had that moment on the hill at Cortland, New York, and I went home with excitement to Long Island to tell my parents who I was the first person in our family to go to college and to tell my parents who had survived the Great Depression, you know, sec- first generation immigrants born in America. So to tell them with excitement that I discovered I was a poet and had this classic argument with my father, who was a master woodworker, you know, how am I going to make a living? And I don't know where it came from in me. Again, I didn't know that I knew it. And I said, I'm going to live a making. And he was just, you know, exasperated and furious. And, did, he, did he think you were just being a smart ass? Or oh, was yes, there... <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Because sometimes I think kids say something like that and we're just, well, it's profound, you know, but other times it's like smart yeah, aleck. You know? he was, yeah, he was, he was not <laughs> impressed. And I had, like when I was in that hotel room later in my life, I had been brought to uh, an expression of expressing something I didn't know I knew. And I spent many years trying to learn and understand what had just come out of me. Yeah. Well, I love, I love what one of the quotations that you use in the book of C.S. Lewis about something to the effect of many times in life, in our lives, when the most important things are happening, we have no idea what's going on. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the kind of thing. And, and, And similarly, I mean, your approach of writing of saying that I don't write about what I know. That's not why I'm, I'm prolific, not because I write about what I know. I write about what I need to know. Absolutely. And then the books are the trail of the inquiry. 
Absolutely. I'd Absolutely. never ever heard that before, but I thought that was so fantastic. And even then the way you were saying in that way, every book becomes your teacher or like the boat or the vessel that then carries you forward in your journey. Absolutely. And, and so when I write, you know, poems, because it all goes, you know, as atoms are the building blocks of, of, of life, you know, poems, poetry, that quality of authentic perception are the building blocks of all my work. And I discover poems and they lead me, they, they become my teachers. So if I'm honest enough and true enough in whatever it is that I'm trying to express or work with, I'm often given an insight or an image, just like I mentioned earlier about the promises and the hawk and the wings in the sky. So I was troubled by this disparity between wanting to promise so much and being able to deliver so little. And as I started to explore that in a poem, the reward at the end of that honest expression was this image appeared. It's like, oh, it's like a hawk spreading its wings. It can't cover the whole sky. And then I said, oh, oh, I didn't like know that and say, well, wouldn't it be neat to end the poem there? I'm not that smart, <laughs> but I discovered it because I was led to it. Yeah. And then you were open. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, congratulations on surviving the enlightening lightning round. Yeah. You, <laughs> you've done admirably. The, the final question, and it technically is this, which is if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Oh, well, you know, clearly, you know, I, I have two websites, marknepo.com and three intentions, all spelled out one word.com. And it's a sister site. And you can find there where I, I travel a lot and teach a lot and offer retreats and workshops and, and then speak at conferences and things. But I also, in addition, I, where I live in Michigan, I offer a year long journey and as well as a six day deep dive for a small group, no more than 30 people. And if you go to my website, there's a little video and there's a link where it has all the details how you can register for that. And uh, those are intimate journeys that I, I so that I can, uh, yeah, because I, I like to be able to do that in addition to all the travel. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And we'll definitely put that in the show notes as well. And people who haven't already subscribed to your newsletter that I believe yes. you also call Three Intentions. Yes. Which I don't know if it's weekly or bi-weekly, but- It's weekly. It's, it's weekly. weekly. And I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed those. Oh, thank I, you. I don't think I see them every week, but I'll check my settings. At any rate, yeah. And that thing that you're saying about the workshops and the teaching, what a gift. I, I, I don't remember where I read it in, in your writing, but something about that it was almost an unconscious that you created that space for yourself as a way to stay in relationship with what is sacred. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, given that I, I grew up like a lot of people with a kind of a dysfunctional family and, and so I didn't have until, you know, I didn't have really intimate friends until I got to college. And I think that unconsciously I made the authentic, I, I made that heart space in the classroom so that I could jump in and be a part of it too. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So the final, the fi oh, and I want to, I'll say this here to make sure I don't forget, but one of the things that I have done is an expression of gratitude to you, Mark, for making the time and sharing of your wisdom with me and everyone listening is I have gone on to Kiva.org, the micro lending site, and I have made a hundred dollar micro loan to a woman entrepreneur in India oh. who's named 
Sunitaben, and she will use this money to purchase a cow for expanding the animal husbandry business she has with uh, her family where she sells milk and butter and cheese. So in some small way, this is benefiting. Well, thank you. That's very touching. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, the, well, the final thing here, Mark, if you're okay with it, I'd, I'd just like to ask you two final questions, and I don't think they'll spawn sure. a, long, a, a long thing. I don't think. The first one is, <laughs> you mentioned that in dreams, Tufu, the, the, I don't know if he's ancient, but the Chinese poet Tufu yes. has been a guide for you. Yeah. Is, are you speaking literally? I'm speaking lit- literally, not obviously, you know, he lived in the 700s, so physically he wasn't a guide for me, but he has appeared through dreams as a guide for me, yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you, I mean, what? Like, it sounds like more than once. And Well, uh, twi- twice, really okay. notably, and, you know, not much else beyond that, but they were very profound times. And so I remember uh, Tufu, who is one of the great poets of the, Tang Dynasty in the 700s in China, and it's often said that Li Po and Tu Fu are China's, together they are China's Shakespeare. And Li Po was very outward, famous, almost like Emerson and Thoreau. He was like famous from the time he burped, you know, and, and Tu Fu was very much like Thoreau, very grounded, very unknown, but, but just an amazing boy. And I remember when I was in college reading Tu Fu for the first time, and it felt, it was one of the first times I felt like, God, I felt like I discovered a friend through the ages. He was so real, so human. I wished I could talk to him, you know? So one of the, 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 the two times that, that, that he really notably appeared to me was once during that time when I was in college in a dream, and I was very, you know, just full of wanting to nobly dedicate myself to a life of poetry and what does that mean to be an artist and how, how do I do this and, and about fame and creating things that are meaningful, all of that. And so in the dream, I, was, I wanted to ask him about all this. And somebody said, oh, he's up that mountain, you know, go, you'll find him, he's up there, he might be on his way back down. And, uh, and so... I met him halfway up, and he was in a hurry to get back down the mountain to his family. And then I was very intimidated in the dream, and so I stumbled, and I wasn't asked, ah, you know, I wasn't saying anything, Mr. Tufu, you know. And, uh, and he didn't have time for it. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he read my mind, all the questions I had. And he simply looked at me, and he said, if you can't see what you're looking for, see what's there. It's enough. Hmm. And then he went off down the mountain, back into the world, to find his family. And then I woke up. And that changed everything for me. Because then I stopped trying to climb and get to the top of the mountain. And I realized the whole purpose of poetry was to be in the world. And I realized that, yeah, if you can't see what you're looking for, see what's there. This is years before my cancer journey. Years before I discovered the lens of the ordinary was the miraculous. If you can't see what you're looking for, see what's there. It's all right there. Mm. It's all right there. And the second time Tufu came to me was very pointed during my cancer journey when I was, you know, I was terrified of everything. And I'd never been really ill or had anything life-threatening. And, I, and it was running my life. I, I mean, I was just exhausted with fear. And I remember having this dream where I was looking to ask him about it. 
and it was on a shore and he was sitting squat legged, you know, cross legged in the sand with a stick in the sand. And I came up to him very agitated and said, how do I block the fear? And he wouldn't even look at me. You know, he's just playing, drawing in the sand. And I was angry. You know, I, I said, how do I block the fear? And without looking at me, he lifted the stick and he said, how does a tree block the wind? And with that, he disappeared. Wow. And I woke up. Uh -huh. And obviously, a tree doesn't block the wind. It lets it through. And that was the gift, the secret to how to stop having fear run my life was to let the fear through not to hold on to it. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. Well, the, the last question that I have for you is just one about, is a topic I'm very interested in. I was an Asian studies major, and I've only recently, in the last few years, made the journeys to India and Nepal and Tibet, and I'm learning more firsthand you know, from visiting the, the countries where a lot of this teaching that I've learned has originated. But one thing I'm so fascinated to learn more about, which is maybe kind of a paradox, is this principle of non-doing, wu-wei, mm. you know, effortless, spontaneous right action, this kind of yeah. thing. And I'm wondering, can any answer is wonderful, but if you were to direct me in deepening my understanding, and I know life is the ultimate teacher, but are there any resources, books, teachers, anything that you might point me to that's going to help me, even if only conceptually, understand this principle of effortless action more fully? Yeah. Well, let me, let me speak to that, not answer it with a story and also sharing my, my own, what's become my practice. And that is you know, we understand this in the, in the Western world, you know, in sports, they talk about it as being in the flow, you know, and, or in jazz, you know, it's when the music descends and, you know, and, and then all of a sudden the hands take off and it's a riff, you know. And so this is where I believe in the interface between effort and grace. So I believe in effort because I don't know when grace will show up. And I also believe that often effort is grace in slow motion. And so I think the key is to drop all intent, is to burn intent as kindling to the fire of non-doing. That is, I give my all, and I may start out because I have an idea for a book, but then let go of it. That's only to light, that's the match that lights the fire. And then to allow myself to be the flame by giving my by holding nothing back and giving my effort and letting the effort unite me with grace and to see where it takes me so that's been my greatest teacher to burn all intent not not to not have intent because often we need intent to start us toward what we can't imagine so it's not like okay there's no intent so I'll just sit here in this room and meditate no right no i need intent and then don't deify it. Mm. Burn it. Burn it in the fire of aliveness and see where, where we go. So the, the, story, the story is one of a sage who sends his student to sit by a river and meditate until he's learned all the river has to teach. And he's a very serious student. 
So he has his cushion, he has his pillow, you know, he has everything, and he and uh, he goes to the river, and he spends the whole first day figuring out where to sit, you know. And he finally sits midway under a willow tree, and he goes into serious meditation for three days, after which the only thing he has is a terrific headache. And just as he's, you know, feeling exasperated, and, and uh, he opens his eyes, and a monkey out of nowhere is jumps in the river, splashing and yapping, and and he it cracks him. He starts to weep, and so he gathers his things. He goes back to his teacher. He tells him what happened, and his master puts his hand around him and he says, "Ah, the monkey heard you just listened." And so, you know, I I read everything, and and I've always been a deep believer and, and love reading. But the goal is to get wet. The goal is to get wet. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> no, <laughs> and that it maybe is too what you say about be the poem. Yeah. Or before you wanted to write great poems and now yeah. you want to be the poem. It's beautiful. Okay. Well, Mark, you have been so generous. And I, I realize as someone who's been doing this for decades, you might have this is not a new experience for you where people feel they know you very intimately from how much you've shared. And, and I, in, in some way, feel that way. Like I've known you a long time and I'm grateful for your work, even though your book has sat on my shelf for many years before I, you know, it arrived in my awareness. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful. And, and uh, for what it's worth, I'm really, I am very grateful for the work you're doing and, and the time you spent with me today, especially. It's, it's been a privilege. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for letting me be a part of your good work. And I feel like I've gotten to know you uh, somewhat in this time, too. So, yeah, thank you and uh, grateful for the work you're doing. And Likewise. who knows, maybe we'll, we'll meet somewhere along the way. Yeah, perhaps. Okay, well, I'll talk to you later. Take care. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 